Ladies and gentlemen, you have made it to Brave to the Bone podcast, where we explore the dynamics of human courage in its most dynamic form, personal transformation. I am a nurse who left traditional Western medicine to explore the vast potential of healing that exists in our natural world. From psychic healers to psychedelic wellness, this is your source to your own human potential. Today we get to hear from Tyler Fink, who is an addiction specialist with an extensive background in aiding recovery with particular psychedelics like iboga. He's a transformational life coach, community organizer, and sound healer with his own amazing story, A Transformation. You'll love this. Enjoy. Tyler, thank you so much for coming to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and the work that you do? Yeah, absolutely, Tanya. Yeah, thank you for having me. I was uh, really excited when you reached out, asked to do this podcast. So really, um, really stoked to be here. Yeah, my name's Tyler Fink, and I've been in the 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 psychedelic field, if you will, for only around six or seven years now. I started off working at a couple Ibogaine centers. I worked at Crossroads Ibogaine Center in Tijuana and then worked for another Ibogaine Center in the Bahamas. I helped consult and build an aftercare center uh, in Las Vegas. And then I've also been working for a transformational recovery coaching company called Being True to You over the last, I guess, four and a half years. Uh, I was the client relations coordinator for that company. Basically, it's just this huge global company where there's a few different facets within that company. Firstly, they have this big you know, five-month very intensive training to train people to be transformational recovery coaches, basically working around preparation and integration around psychedelic medicines and, uh, and the human experience through the lens of addiction and addictive attachments. And then there's also a whole community as well. We have weekly Zoom calls um, for our clients and for our coaches. We work with different entheogenic retreat centers around the world. Um, we have different coaching plans that we work with people for. But anyway, that's a little bit about what I do. I also um, I also uh, work with people one on one and uh, do medicine work with people also, which is really where my passion lies. That's just a little bit about what I'm doing for work, and I can share a little bit about what got me into this whole uh, this whole thing, if you'd like to. Yeah, you know, it's something that. A lot of times people need some education around. I'm also in recovery and I gave up drinking two years ago. And, you know, within my own recovery story, I couldn't induce that spiritual experience. I still felt disconnected. I was still depressed and I did all the things, you know, I had life coaches, acupuncture, hypnosis. I did all the things and it wasn't until I found psilocybin that I began to heal my brain. And then I continued to walk towards it. And the more, so much more opened up. So I, and I find that when we talk about it in a lot of different communities, people are like, what is this? This is crazy. How can you be in recovery and have psychedelics? So it's just a wonderful story. So I would definitely want to go into that. I want to get into your own story. And I also, I haven't had anybody talk in detail about Ibogaine on the podcast before. So I'd love for you to also educate us about Ibogaine because you'll be the first one. Love that. Yeah, you know, I I struggled with a pretty uh, hardcore heroin addiction for a little over a decade. I'm originally from Philadelphia, 
and it's where that addiction really took hold of me. Philadelphia and uh, Southern Florida, which is where I lived for several years too, before moving to San Diego. But yeah, I mean, I, I went through the gauntlet. Of Tyler, can you take us back to like your childhood and just kind of give us like a little brief window yeah. of who Tyler was at that age? So that for sure, yeah. I mean, I um, I actually had a really good childhood. You know, my 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 father was um, you know, struggling with with alcoholism for a long while and was able to get a hold of it. Outside of that. My parents were very involved in my life. I was very athletic. I played a lot of sports. I was a big time wrestler in, in high school. I was pretty well known in like the paper, ranked in the state, like a big athlete, pretty popular. You know, I, I, it was tough because I, I listened to other people who talk about you know, really like hardcore traumas that they experienced when they were younger. And it's like, yeah, no kidding that you're utilizing like, you know, drugs to cope with that. And for me, I would reflect back on my childhood. Like I, I didn't have any like hardcore trauma that I could really pinpoint it. I just kind of enjoyed getting high and it was fun and it just turned into an addiction kind of. And that was something that I beat myself up about for very, very long. Um, you know, I had nothing to really, nothing like of note to, to put it on like other people do. And um so that, that's something that I really had to work through. And like, but uh, something that really came to me within that process is that, you know, we all have our own very unique human experience and trauma comes in many different forms. They, they, they're very obvious sometimes, um, but sometimes they can be really, really subtle. And uh, we don't even necessarily realize that we were traumatized by a situation or an event until maybe never or like way, way later in our lives. And it can be elusive. And that was more my story. Basically, yeah, I was in the, in the newspaper a lot. And I think something that really led to my addiction is that I had this persona that people knew me in the county, in the state as this, you know, this, this, this wrestler, this, you know, guy that kind of has all this going for them. And I always kind of was a little bit fearful that if I let people um, see past Tyler the wrestler that I wouldn't be able to live up to it. So I kept people at arm's length for very long periods of time and used drugs to make myself feel more than make myself feel like I could live up to Tyler, that the, the wrestler, uh, which obviously, uh, you know, we have everything that we need in us already. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's so your understanding of that um, is really clear. So thank you so much for sharing your story in that way that you felt like you you weren't enough and you had to accommodate that. Thank you. Yeah. And I was in South Florida for several years. And um, I don't know if you're aware of like the pain management clinics down there. There was actually a whole documentary called the Oxycontin Express, where you were able to see multiple pain management doctors in a month, you were able to see like seven or eight, there was no like central database that would flag you. So it was very easy. You just get an, uh, uh, like an MRI and, and um, very easily able to get hundreds of pills prescribed to you from a doctor. Did this start with an injury then? And you just got Oxycontin and then it just kind of snowballed or? I had a herniated disc from wrestling. I wouldn't say it really constituted any type of like crazy painkiller for, you know, it was just, I had a, a, a slight bulging disc, which I was able to use. I feel like in any, any other state, if I showed a doctor this MRI with this bulging disc, they would not be prescribing me Oxycontins and, and Percocets, you know, but in Florida, it was kind of like uh, the wild west. So I was just so immersed for several years down there, just doing all types of pills, selling drugs, getting robbed in the middle of the night, just complete chaos. You know, I've been arrested 
I can't even count how many times been to jail a, a whole bunch. So, um, for me, um, I mean, I was in rehab five times, detox three times and worked through the steps multiple times and never really, uh, you know, the, the steps never gave me what I needed. Um, to be honest, I would go to these, these rehabs and go to meetings and, you know, it was to me at least proposed that AA or 12 steps is really like, it's the best way. It's the most effective way. It's really the only way. Like, yeah. Go Absolutely. try modalities, but keep coming back. It's like underlying kind of tone of, yeah, we'll see you again because nothing else works. But so, and then they, you know, they have these things like it works if you work it right. Well, man, like I, I worked the steps a few times and I put my, my, my heart into it and it didn't work for me. So if, 12 steps is like the most effective way to work through addiction. Uh, and if it works, if you work it, I just felt like, well, well shit, like I'm, I'm a lost cause then. Like that's the ultimate fuck it for me. Mm-hmm. And I feel like 12 steps kind of kept me in my addiction longer than I needed to. And I love the 12 steps and I will definitely share a little bit more about my evolution in relationship with the 12 steps. But, um, you know, I was like that last stint rehab, I was like, I was over it. I was done. Like there was something in me that I knew I wasn't going back to that. I went to rehab right, right outside of Philadelphia. And then I moved to uh, San Diego, which is where I live now. Um, right after rehab, I've been in San Diego for about eight years now. It's like, there's gotta be another way through, you know, I wasn't really aware yet of like psychedelics. And I moved to San Diego and just started listening to a lot of podcasts, like really for the first time in my life felt free. Like I was exploring my spirituality, reading a lot of books, and uh, learning about, you know, different, not just like different modalities of recovery, but different um, theories and perspectives around addiction that I've never heard of before, you know, kind of moving away from this like disease model that you are kind of diseased for the rest of your life. But that's how I found psychedelics. And then um, being in San Diego, I live right above the border. Um, you know, there's a lot of Ibogaine centers in, in Tijuana and, um, there's a pretty robust psychedelic community here in San Diego. So I started going to a lot of events, psychedelic awareness events, and just like networking and putting myself out there. And um, I met somebody, we connected. About two weeks later, he called me up and asked me if I wanted a job at Crossroads. And that was kind of my foot in the door. I've um, Previous to that. Um, Can you yeah. tell us though, your first experience? Because I want to get a, my listeners to get an idea of how Ibogaine um, helps you and what to- type of window in your soul that was like. Yeah, absolutely. So me, that was interesting. So I moved out here. I was out here for a year in San Diego. I got a, a hernia, which I had to get surgery on. And instead of doing painkillers, I heard about Kratom and I was taking Kratom. For anyone that doesn't know, Kratom is a plant that's indigenous to um, the South Pacific, and it has a molecule in it. I forget the name of it off the top of my head, but it's an, it's an opioid agonist. So it's not an opioid, but it tricks your brain into thinking that you're putting opiates in your system. So it has a very similar effect as opiates. Um, it also has addiction and withdrawal tied into it as well, which I was not aware of at the time. So I was doing Kratom for about a year, and I actually did I began to get off of Kratom, ultimately. I had to do Ibogaine twice, actually, twice in like about a year and a half to get off the Kratom. And wow. So I went down to Mexico and um, it, it was, I, I was there all by myself. It was a really beautiful place in Tijuana. You know, they ran me through Ibogaine. I was there for 10 days and yeah, it was a, a powerful experience. So a little bit about Ibogaine. Um, Ibogaine 
they call it. So firstly, it's, 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 it's an alkaloid within the aboga root bark. Um, aboga is a, is a plant that grows in Gabon, Africa, uh, Central East Africa, I believe. And um, it's utilized by the indigenous out there, the Bwitis, as a sacrament for their uh, spiritual beliefs. It's similar to the way that the Amazonian people utilize medicines like ayahuasca for their uh, spiritual beliefs as well. And um, the aboga shrub is composed of 13 alkaloids, I believe. One of those alkaloids is ibogaine. It's the most, it's the strongest alkaloid. So aboga, you can totally take the whole root bark uh, and it's like a 30 hour experience. It's pretty, you know, it's, 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 it's difficult and it's long. It's, it's a marathon experience for sure. 30 hours. <laughs> is there no sleep? And like, yeah, you're not, you're not sleeping, um, at all. And I'll, I'll get into like the experience a little bit, you know, they have their own music that goes along with the, the, the medicine too, so similar to the Icaros that are, uh, associated with ayahuasca and it's hard on the system at Boga. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's probably the most dangerous psychedelic medicine out there. It definitely has the most contraindications with other pharmaceutical medications and also has, I think the most elaborate protocol needed to be able to uh, go through the medicine. But if you check off all the boxes, go through the protocols, it's incredibly safe. It's hard on the heart, uh, the cardiac system and the liver system in particular. So Ibogaine, what they're able to do is they're, they're able to separate the Ibogaine alkaloid with uh, like hydrochloride, like a salt solution. So you get like Ibogaine HCL and it's still a very intense experience, but it's cut in half the, the, the duration. It's about 15 hours or so. It's not as intense or hard. So someone that is someone whose health is battered down by years and years of addiction, um, Ibogaine is definitely the preferred way because it's just easier on the system. But for people that are not struggling with like heart addictions, um, I would very much suggest doing a full aboga rebark and do it shamanically with a facilitator. Um, the Ibogaine centers that are in Mexico are set up more medical. You're hooked up to the EKG, you're hooked up to heart monitors. And, you know, it's like, it's somewhat, some of them are in like a, a very like kind of medical setting. So I say like, 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 like I begin, honestly, it's about 24 hours. I mean, the, the peak of the experience is about 12 hours, but you're, you're, you're still in it for a good 24 hours. Traditional psychedelics are called entheogens, but Ibogaine, Naboga, is actually, it's in a different category. It's definitely like a standalone medicine. It's actually, it's an anirogen. And anirogen means evoking a dreamlike state. So people talk about Iboga and Ibogaine in particular is they feel like they're in like a waking dream. You know, I can draw parallels to ayahuasca, LSD, psilocybin, traditional psychedelics. Like, you know, they, they are different, have different profiles and experience, but there are similarities where... Um, Aboga, Ibogaine is definitely like in its own class. You know, there, there is no parallels. It's very different. It's very intense. So they basically, if you were to look at somebody that's going through Ibogaine, they're just laying in bed with their eyes closed, looking somewhat peaceful. I mean, you don't want to move. It's not like other medicines where you might want to dance or move. Like if you move a little bit, like you get really woozy. Um, so you just, you want to stay still and lay there. And you look at somebody and they're just kind of there, you know, just laying down. But, you know, what's going on behind the eyelids uh, and internally is a different story. So for me, um, and I can just really talk about my experience. Um, you know, you close your eyes and it's literally, for me at least, it was like a projection screen was playing on the back of my eyelids. It wasn't just like symbols and just like imagery coming in. It was actual like 
like movie roles of my life. Basically, I remember I closed my eyes and I could I could like I saw maybe like 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 20 different little like like square like TV types of things. And each square was playing like a, a, an event in my life at different at a different age. And now, did you have preparation to kind of lead you to process and integrate your life before or was this just what happened? Um, it's preferred to have preparation for me. The first time I did it, I didn't really know anywhere to go. I just went. So, okay, so nobody told you that you'd be processing your life. It just spontaneously occurred. I read about it. I listened to people's experiences. I had somewhat of an idea. I wasn't completely blind going in. Okay. I knew that it was going to be like, I knew that like trauma was going to probably come up. I knew that I was going to have to like face aspects of my shadow and my psyche that um, have been um, holding me back in certain ways. So, I mean, I, I was aware. There is definitely like a preferred preparation process for people going into, I began in particular for addiction, but like really any type of psychedelic medicine for, for sure. Um, and so um, I'm trying to talk about this and consolidate it a little bit. Um, so I began cool because you actually kind of are in the driver's seat. Um, you have somewhat uh, agency and interaction with the medicine where with other medicines, in my experience, you take ayahuasca, DMT, it's kind of like these medicines like are taking you along for the ride. Absolutely. You, know, you surrender to it and they're going to take you where they take you. Where Even ketamine will do the same. It'll, it's yeah. going to take you where it takes you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's a whole, that's another medicine that I work with that I absolutely love, but that's, you know, we only have an hour. <laughs> With Ibogaine, you are kind of in the driver's seat to a degree. You can kind of like choose your own adventure. So I was talking about those little TV screens playing different aspects of my life. I was actually able to kind of like pick what screen that I wanted to look at. And I was able to like kind of like click on it and then like it would come up. And I was like in that particular event. And basically for me, um, one of the big things like like Ibogaine, I, I it's it's grueling. It's, it's got more of, they call it like, like a stern father energy where like ayahuasca has more of like a motherly energy, if you will you know, it's, it's definitely a little, a little bit more grueling. So basically I saw myself at five years old on a playground playing with a little girl. Uh, we got into a fight. She pushed me over, ran away. And I started crying like crazy. And, um, I slowly started remembering this situation happened to me, but I completely forgot about it. It came up in my Abigail experience and it shined a lot of light for me on why I was so self-conscious around women. It, it really just kind of like connecting the dots. It was like, like, oh, like this thing is what happened to me at like five years old. And like, it was very clear, like that was something that stuck with me around. I don't know the details of the fight that her and I got into, but it was just sometimes it's like, like connecting the dots is enough. You don't need to go much deeper. So that was you, but it was like that, that situation was playing over and over again for hours and hours and hours. It was like, I began with smacking me across the face with the two by four of this experience over and over and over again. It was grueling, you know, and that's kind of how, how it works with Ibogaine, you know, and um, you have the psychedelic experience, the experiential component of Ibogaine where, um, you know, you are really like kind of traversing the aspects of your psyche and it's, it's, it's more inward, you know, like, and I'm only talking about my experiences, but like say like ayahuasca, other medicines where it's definitely more of like an outward experience. I feel like I'm kind of leaving myself. I'm tapping into that infinity outside of myself where with Ibogaine, it was like, I was tapping into that infinity, but doing it, within, you know, it's, it's a root bark. I think about the way that plants grow in nature. So iboga, it, it, it grows underground. It's a root bark. It's a shrub. So it's a very grounding medicine. It's mm -hmm. very grounding. And, um, you know, you kind of go like, it's more like, like an inward process where like ayahuasca and like 
it's a vine. It like grows fluidly upwards around like a tree or what have you, um, you know, and there's more kind of fluid, flowy kind of energy within the ayahuasca experience for me, at least more outwardly. But um, IBM works really well for addiction because what's going on, at least like in the brain is, um, so I think about the way that habits are formed. I engage in a behavior and like a neural pathway or a synapse is created in the brain. And the more that I engage in that behavior consistently over time, the deeper that those neural pathways become ingrained into my neurology and my psyche, reinforcing that behavior. That's kind of how habits are formed uh, for good, you know, healthy habits, unhealthy habits, what have you. And I mean, through years and years and years of, of living our day-to-day life, like we have all these little like neural pathways that we're like kind of like grooving into our psyche that are keeping us conditioned in, in particular habits and routines. Um, so obviously like addiction is a really powerful pathway that gets grooved, etched into our, our psyche and our brains. Um, you know, I'm stressed out. I, you know, uh, smoke some weed or, you know, do a line of cocaine and I'm not feeling stressed out anymore. Like, wow. So I keep going back to that. So I have a game kind of goes into the brain firstly, and it acts as kind of like a scrubber. So it goes in and like scrubs away all those old like neural pathways ultimately kind of like resetting the brain to a pre-addictive uh, state. Um, now it doesn't take away your memory. I still have that like deeply embedded memory. Like I feel stressed. I do this drug. I'm not feeling stressed out anymore. It doesn't take that away, but the neurological reinforcement is somewhat reset. And um, well said. Yeah. And, and so like moving forward from an Ibogaine experience, if I start engaging in new behaviors and thought processes, um, new habits, they, they catch a lot quicker with the psyche. Instead of, you know, I think they say it takes like 30 days to make a habit and 30 days to break a habit. And moving forward from an Ibogaine experience, it only takes like a matter of days for new habits and thought processes uh, and behaviors to click with the psyche. And so it's good to take advantage of that. And of course, like if we go back to our day-to-day life and we just go back into the same routines, like those old, old pathways that were scrubbed away, like they're not gone completely. They're still there and they resurface, you know, they can resurface, but so that's, that's one way that it works. And also for people that are experiencing like, like opiate addiction in particular, they go through this really horrible, like withdrawal process. Right. And that's because uh, we put, you know, uh, the, like an opiate in our system and we start depleting uh, the opioid, the dopamine receptor sites in our brain. And um, you know, the more that we use a drug, the more that we're depleting those neuro, those, uh, those uh, neurotransmitters. So when I take the drug out, take the drug away and I'm not on the drug for an extended period of time. It's like my, my body has to work overtime to replenish these receptor sites. And this is one of the ways in which like withdrawal occurs, you know, the depression, the anxiety, the, the physical uh, stuff that happens. So I began basically goes into your brain and replenishes these receptor sites almost immediately. So uh, basically somebody is like just starting withdrawal. They're starting to feel really crappy and then they take the medicine and literally within like an hour and a half, they're not feeling the withdrawals anymore. And their withdrawals are gone completely for about like, like a day and a half to two days. But inevitably for a lot of people, the withdrawal symptoms do come back. The residual withdrawal symptoms do come back, but they're at a lot less intensity. So, you know, you, you, a person would probably have around like 85% or so it's an arbitrary percentage, but I'm just kind of throwing that out there through my experience. 85% or so of the intensity of withdrawal is taken away. So that residual withdrawal symptoms that do come back, it's only like 15% intensity, much easier to work through. Um, For some people, their withdrawal symptoms are gone forever, completely. Um, So that's a huge one, you know, within the detox process.
the listeners can't see you and you're such a bright eyed, beautiful soul. And it's so wonderful to have you. And I really love all the education that you're giving us. So, so in, in any way, yeah, please continue. And then um, weave in your, that story because the work that you do now also is so important. It's really a beautiful medicine. And, you know, I worked for an IBN center for um, a couple of years and I was doing a lot of like intakes and sales. I do sound healing. So I would go down there and do like sound healing and like personal coaching for the, uh, the clients down there. I worked with a lot of families alleviating fears around sending their loved ones to like a third world environment like Tijuana to do a, an illegal psychedelic substance for an addiction. I mean, you would imagine there's a lot of fear and, you know, angst that comes up for the people going down there, but also for the families. So I, I did a lot of work internally with families, alleviating those fears a lot. You know, those are a couple ways that they work on the brain and just through the psychedelic experience. Now, I think Ibogaine, in my experience, is the most effective medicine for like addictions. Like they call it an addiction interrupter is what they call it. And it does interrupt the person's addiction and it gives them, you know, space of clarity and inspiration to move forward. Uh, it gives them like a, a solid window to start kind of working on themselves without the weight of addiction. Yes. Love that inspiration. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. For that. And, um, <laughs> but, you know, for so many people, they go down, they do Ibogaine, they go back to their, their day-to-day life. And it's like, you know, that it's, it's, you know, that's just the first part of the, the journey. And, and, um, you know, like, like people don't, they, I, I think the, the, the aftercare component is um, so overlooked and people are trying to save money. I began is, can be pricey. It's not covered by insurance. So, you know, it's, it's, it's pricey. And um, I talk about the coaching and the aftercare is kind of like an insurance policy. Like you're putting all this money into this really powerful experience to what come back to your normal life that you just left to. Mm-hmm. To backstep, you know, like, like you want same to continue friends, same contract. The process. Yeah. So mm-hmm. It's like an insurance policy, if anything. You know, that's where, you know, a lot of the work that I was doing, working with people around like aftercare and, um, um, you know, the company that I, I, I help manage, um, that's what they do. Um, you know, they, they, they work around preparation and integration. I've done Ibogaine a, a few different times. For me, that was like my first like real like intentional psychedelic experience in my entire life. I was a big part of the burner community, the rave community in Philadelphia, but like the underbelly of that community, the drug fueled kind of um, portion of it, you know, not, not the conscious part of, of those communities. And so like I moved out to San Diego and words like, like intention, you know, words that I probably never used in my entire life. I started using a lot. which is cool. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, that was, that was powerful for me. And then, uh, then I found ayahuasca and honestly, ayahuasca is my medicine that I connect with the most. I've been down to Peru. I've worked, you know, I've lived in little Shipibo villages, worked intensively through master plant diets over the course of weeks and weeks. You know, a really cool community that I sit with in San Diego. And, um, you know, that's, there's, there's a poetic nature that I experience within the ayahuasca experience, like, like the Iconos, uh, the, the songs of the plants work in unison synergistically with that medicine. And they're just so beautiful. You know, like for me, you know, it, it, it is the songs that carry the medicine for me. Like I learn the songs, I sing them, I hum them throughout my day-to-day life. And, you know, that's what brings me back to the ceremony. 
you know, before I started working at the Ibogaine Center, like one of the first things I did when I moved to San Diego is um, I helped uh, co-facilitate a men's talking circle out here, you know, a space for men to come and feel safe to share with their, their vulnerable nature and um, we aligned ourselves with the Native American church, working really closely with a Lakota elder. And um, we were doing uh, monthly sweat lodges. I was fire tending, um, um, holding space within those um, in those sweat lodges and, you know, their own style of beautiful music and songs and medicine songs come into those lodges too. And, um, and yeah, we would do like peyote ceremonies on the solstice, summer and winter uh, in Joshua tree every year. And oh, um, yeah, and it was, you know, that was my first real step into like um, ceremony, you know, and the intentionality that goes into setting up the altar in the space. The Ibogaine Center that I worked for closed down and the coaching company being true to you um, were affiliated with the Ibogaine Center. And it just seemed like the next like likely like way for me to go. So I took the training. I was in the community. I started coaching with the community and I was asked if I wanted like a bigger role in that community. So I was a client relations coordinator for several years. I, I helped teach some of the training as well. And um, I do a lot of the sales, a lot of like the, you know, I pair people up with coaches and like do quality checks and all types of stuff. I wore a lot of hats in the company. And recently I, I'm actually not in the administrative role anymore with that company. I'm more of like a contractor for them now and do like content writing and things like that. Uh, so I would be able to open up more space and more, more potential for doing what I really love to do. And that's, that's, um, you know, facilitating and, you know, running people through medicine experiences. Basically what I'm doing now is, you know, I work with people over the course of like months and months and months. And, you know, within that time, like we might slide in um, medicine as needed here and there. And, you know, that's just really where my, my heart lies and having the role that I had in, in being true to you. It just, I loved doing that work, but it wasn't filling me up in the way that I knew I needed to be filled. So so yeah, so that, that's a lot of what I do now is, uh, you know, I just, I just work with people one-on-one and, you know, help just kind of build community as well here in San Diego. Yeah. Wonderful. And so do you have mostly male clients or do you have a nice combination of both? I have male clients. I have female clients. I have clients that are like 15 years old, 14. Oh, that's wonderful. I've people that are like 60, 70. I've worked with people around like end of life stuff. Yeah. So I... I started an addiction. That was kind of just like my experience. But, you know, I, I honestly, like I moved a, a away from the addiction recovery and like just kind of in like more just working with people through the human experience. I guess I just wanted to say that, like, you know, what I've learned and the way I work with people, and I'm just curious, I want to share this because I want to see how what your recurring themes are, is just that of um, so much gentleness, like coming back to ourselves, listening, forgiving ourselves and starting again. It's this cyclical of gentleness and self-forgiveness over and over and over. Is that what you see as a recurring theme in working with the human experience through transformation? I think the way that the, the medicines have helped me the most is they kind of make the untangible tangible for me. I you know, I, I, I question a lot. So unlike my, my wife who, you know, has her faith in, in spirit and I had always had that for me, like that wasn't there. 
And I, I, I kind of had an inkling that there was something behind the veil. There was something else out there, but um, I, I couldn't, you know, I needed more proof, I guess. And the psychedelic experience really allowed me to peek behind the veil and, 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 and made, again, the intangible tangible. And because you and your wife, it was a good um, example of differences. Now, in Tyler's experience, your experience of who you were, did you first have to cultivate that self-love and that self inner loving being before you could start to look at an outside spirit like your wife always had? Or does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I don't believe I never really thought about that really, but no, I mean, I, I think like the way that I started learning about spirituality and reading and just like starting like, like meditation practices and yoga were very much happening simultaneously through my own beautiful journey of self-love and forgiveness. And, um, and yeah, it kind of just back to your question, um, you know, with the medicines, at least what I see them do for a lot of people is not just kind of make the intangible tangible, but also I think it takes these really complex narratives that we have these stories that we have about ourselves and about life and reality and they just they they really simplify them to like the essence of what it is to be like a good human you know like like everything's going to work out you know treat people like you want to be treated you know like be impeccable with your word like you know like these really simple truths you know that we have a tendency to really just make very messy and complex just through our own inner turmoil it's all about meeting somebody where they're at so you know, I'll work with people, you know, some people are like, or just learn, like they need to learn how to like build healthy relationships with people. And like, like, they don't know what like a healthy friendship is like. And that's, that's what we work on. You know, some people like I use like these medicine experiences, like a rite of passage. And I talk about how the rite of passage is something that's missing from our Western society, but I feel like is very much embedded into the human condition through millennia of various styles of rite of passage embedded into different cultures and indigenous societies throughout the times. Archetypes that are also um, associated with our ability to make sense of our lives. And But yeah, some people like they want to work around. Yeah, just like like, like self-forgiveness. I do a lot of inner child work. So I work with a lot of people around like I bring them back to uh, earlier states of their lives and how uh, they might still be affected by those, um, those earlier years. And um, um, yeah, I think like, you know, forgiveness is a powerful tool. What was really helpful for me is re restructuring my perspective around like addictive attachments and what addiction is. So like, you know, addiction is a disease. It's very stigmatized and you're going to have it for the rest of your life. It's, it's, it's chronic and it's, it, 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 it builds and builds. You know, they say that your addiction is doing pushups when you're not, when you're sober, which, you know, uh, I guess that theory works for some people, but you know, there, there's nothing really that's like, like what we're learning now around like neuroscience and the plasticity of the brain and its ability to heal itself. Like, you know, that's just not making as much sense anymore. But like, like for me, like I can put addiction into like three different categories. Like we have heart addictions, which is like the methamphetamine, the opiates, like the obvious ones. Um, then we have like soft addictions, which would be more like sugar, technology, social media, gambling. And then there's a third category that I personally call subtle addictions. And these are more like addictions of the mind. So Things like addiction to control, addiction to our emotions, addiction to our story, looking at things like PTSD, depression, anxiety disorders is having like really strong undertones of addiction wrapped around them. And it's through this wow. kind of like wider lens of what addiction encompasses. It's like everybody 
is hooked by addiction one way or the other. It just like takes hold of people. Differently. Oh, I love this. You just transcended the whole idea of addiction as a spectrum and made it just so much more tangible. You know, I've heard people say like when we we like to call um, addiction as a spectrum or all sorts of things as a spectrum and, and the word spectrum doesn't make sense because it's all encompassing. But when you say, OK, look, we got these soft, hard and addictions of the mind. That was just gorgeous. Did Is that yeah. something that spontaneously occurred to you or like where did you start to tap into that? Honestly, when I threw the training for the coaching company or being true to you, oh, uh, it, wow. it really shifted my perspective around addiction. And they didn't necessarily talk about addiction in the way that I'm talking about it right now, but the way that they laid out addiction allowed me to build my own personal relationship with addiction and what it means to me. And it's um, so like, I might be working with somebody that's like, you know, like, like severely depressed, right? And like there's, they're having, they're, they're stuck. And it's like, just because an addiction's subtle doesn't make it any easier to work through than a heart addiction. Um, you know, it's just subtle. It's harder to, um, um, identify like the source and the nature of that particular addiction. So someone that's going through like an opiate addiction or heart addiction is like, wow, like, you know, there's a very identifiable, tangible source that's influencing addiction. You know, I, I get rid of the alcohol. Yeah. Would you put alcohol in that heart addiction? Um, of course. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I get rid of alcohol and like my life is going to change pretty dramatically, you know, in one way. So those are, you know, people like there's a starting point for someone that's like severely depressed, dealing with a lot of anxiety. It's like, they don't necessarily know like why, you know, like, like it's kind of like they're walking in circles trying to figure out why they're feeling so stuck and so bad. And, you know, there's no like identifiable, like tangible source for them. And um, it can be very daunting. So for some people, I will put their depression or, you know, these addictions of the mind into like the context of addiction for them. And all of a sudden it gives them like a starting point. It gives them like a foundation to then build from. And it, it, it's empowering. There's a lot of stigma around the word addiction. So, I mean, I'll even do something as simple, like, like I'll even take the word addiction out and use a word like control pattern. You know, you're using this control pattern in your life. That's da 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 da. So it's you know about like meeting somebody where they're at and finding the right words and concepts that are gonna hit home. Wow, I so have that control pattern. <laughs> Being a mother running my household, my brother is 30 days. He's younger than me, about eight years. He's 30 days over 30 days clean from meth, and he's come. You know, multiple times he's come to get sober, but this he's doing just a wonderful job. And it's um, just such a, it's such a challenge because what you're saying makes so much sense beneath the addiction. When you get that sobriety, there's this um, restlessness. And we were out eating the other day and he's like, I just feel when I'm in public that everyone is watching me and I don't know where that comes from. And there's just so much chaotic energy. And I'm like, oh my God, I have no idea how to fix that. It, to help you other than it gets better with time and you know the magic of psychedelics so it is I'm so glad you do what you do and it's it's such an interesting thing because the heart addictions as you're saying are sometimes a result of the inability to soothe the the mind addictions like you said the anxiety and the depression absolutely and like I said like we kind of break down these addictions of the mind it's like you know like to me like what addiction means to me is um, you know it's any habitual thought process or behavior that has a negative effect on our lives. Some people can talk about healthy addictions. I just to me like that negative effect on our lives is really important. And to me like a healthy addiction is more it's just a healthy habit. Um, and that's just my personal relationship with it. You know like some people like need to be like for me like 
um, you know, I, I can still, you know, I, I take, my, I take, you know, like, like psychedelics or, you know, I might smoke a little cannabis and like, it's not going to bring me back to the crack pipe or to the needle, you know, where mm-hmm. if we tell ourselves that on a daily basis, like that's going to be our truth and our reality. Right. And some people need that, you know, and I, I was working with so many people that uh, were in 12 steps that were really interested or already utilizing psychedelics mm-hmm. in their recovery. And, you know, they, they had nowhere to it, like, Firstly, like like to integrate their psychedelic experiences within like a 12-step frame, which in and of themselves, I think the 12 steps are a phenomenal framework to live life by. I think if everybody lived by the 12 steps, the world would just be a better place. But it's like the 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 human element is what makes the 12 steps really messy and and dangerous, I think, in certain ways. So I started noticing this and like people like they weren't able to talk about their psychedelic experiences and like meetings because, you know, obviously it's just not, uh, you know, the stigma. Okay. We do storytelling. Like you said, we have this um, underlining narrative and sometimes in the 12 steps, you hear the same story and the same people will same tell the same story over and over and over and over again. But to me in my spiritual process and my own recovery, my story is gorgeous because it changes and gets juicier every year. So if I hear a stagnant story, I just don't feel like that's growth. Is that something that you noticed as well? Yeah, you know, people are coming into like a lot of meetings and just kind of talking about like the mundane events within their life, complaining, 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 like each day. And it's kind of the same stuff. And, you know, there's no like solution based share, uh-huh. you know, not all the time. You, you find like you find good meetings and like that's different. You know, not all meetings are created equal. That's true. Um, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a, like, you know, like like 12 steps. It's the most prevalent recovery process that we know of you can go to any small town or city and find a meeting like the the community is already built in and um you know i think that's the most powerful aspect of the 12 steps right now is the community but so basically um what we did me and a friend of mine we we started our own psychedelic 12-step meeting here in san diego about eight months before covid started and we you know we rewrote the steps basically we incorporated you know we, we kept the flavor and the essence of 12 steps, but incorporated like psychedelic concepts and lingos. We kind of made like made it a little bit more conscious, if you will. And um, we started an in-person meeting here in San Diego and it just like really took off. And basically there is this other organization called Psychedelics in Recovery that were around right. for a couple of years, but they were kind of like pre-COVID, like they were, they only had like one meeting like a week, I think. And we're only seeing like four or five people in the meeting. Like they were really stagnant. I think firstly, um, COVID with everything going virtual, um, kind of blew a, a, a breath of fresh air within psychedelics and recovery. But um, basically what we did is we aligned our meeting with psychedelics and recovery. And through that, uh, created more meetings and like built that community. So now I think there's like, there's like 13 meetings a week. We have men's meetings, women's meetings, there's meetings in like different countries to uh, help with time zone differences and stuff. And um, yeah, people are like reaching out to us wanting to start like in-person psychedelic 12 step groups around the country. So like, you know, we have like a little like startup kit for people that want to start psychedelic 12 step groups. That's been incredible. Just kind of, to me, you know, bringing like the psychedelic awareness into like the recovery community, like 12 steps was like the, to me, like, like the, the access point, because it is the biggest, the most well-known, the most prevalent. So like, if we can kind of infiltrate, if you will, like that 
community a little bit and like kind of start branching off and creating like these 12 step psychedelic 12 step meetings like wow like that's a great way to get the message out to the masses in a, a more efficient way and especially to the people who need it so i love the 12 steps i'm not you know it's not necessarily my pathway of recovery but i think it helps so many people and it's a beautiful framework you know i just think again just you know i, I think the teachings of the bible are a beautiful message and framework but then like you know you kind of have like humans come in they have their own perspectives on it and they try to tweak it and change it and it's like the human element that mm, mutate the message and i think the same things happen with 12 steps too mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so then what is your message and what is your understanding um you know for addiction in particular i mean to me it's just like you know we all have our own unique relationship with our addiction you can ask 10 different people, what addiction means to them and their experience, you can get like 10 different answers. You know, like my um, definition, which I shared with you around addiction might be different than somebody else's. You know, I might go to like a 12 step meeting and I see somebody talk about being clean off of heroin, let's say for like 10 years, but I also see them binge drinking coffee, chain smoking cigarettes. And to me, like, wow, there's an energy with addiction, you know, and this person's still in the, in the energy. And I talked to this guy, though, and, you know, he's been off of heroin for 10 years. He's a productive member of society. He has a beautiful family. All these things are going well. So I was like, who am I to judge him and his process, right? Like, it's working for him. That's his relationship. He might look at me and say, oh, like, you drink ayahuasca. You, you know, you you, you take mushrooms. Like, you're not sober, you know? Like, mm-hmm. so, like, like, for me, it's like, firstly, like, my idea of, like, altered states is... You know, like anything that we ingest is going to activate an altered state. I mean, I eat like a piece of red meat. I'm going to get hits of serotonin and dopamine through like the deliciousness of that or like like spinach or carrots. And, you know, so it's like like anything that we ingest, like we're always into an altered and an altered state in one way or the other coffee, nicotine. And that's not to say all altered states are created equal. But um, uh, with that, too, I feel like 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 sobriety as well as it's 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 a lifestyle to me. Like, like it's not a destination, you know, because we're always in an altered state through the, like the food that we eat, let's say like, like, are we ever like sober, you know, but to me, like sobriety, it's, it's a lifestyle. It's not a destination. It's not a place that we arrive at. It's a way of being and a way of living. And that's going to look differently for each individual. So I guess like the bottom kind of line around my message, I suppose is, you know, we all have our own beautiful, unique relationship with addiction and moving out of like this one size fits all understanding of addiction and modalities and really working on um, um, curating our own pathway of recovery and relationship with addiction, personalizing it is really where the weight of healing takes place. I think once we start kind of restructuring our relationship with our addictions, they, they start having a different hold on us. Like for me, it's like I can list all of the horrible things that my addiction's done to me, but like, well, what has my addiction given me that I that I absolutely love? Well, resourcefulness, compassion, and empathy for other people, mm-hmm. um, resiliency. You know, there's a lot of things that my addiction gave me that I'm very, very grateful for. You know, there is like a an obsessive nature, I guess, if you will, with an addiction that I can also like kind of apply to like positive things in my life. So, at some point, as I start uniquely curating my own relationship with my addiction it started to shift in my life and wasn't so much an enemy anymore but started becoming more of an ally to me 
Beautiful. And, um, you know, so that's, I guess, as far as like my message go and the way that I work with people, it's like, it's that like personalizing our addiction and our relationship to it. Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has just been incredible. And I just love your experience and perspective and where you've come from and what you're doing now. It's incredible. I'm pretty grateful. Um, just, you know, like one of the the contracts that I made with myself and with spirit coming out of, you know, recovery the last time, coming out of my addiction the last time was, you know, if I made it through, I was going to utilize my addiction and my experience with addiction to help other people utilize it as a positive and not a negative. And um, yeah, and that's something that I still hold very, very closely. It's just uh, really beautiful to be able to work with people that were in similar situations as me that were feeling that despair and just um, walking beside them. Um, I don't tell people what to do. I don't like, like basically I'm there to hold space, act as a mirror, uh, reflect back what I kind of hear underneath people's shares and stand beside them and, and, and help them come to their own understandings around life and around addictions and just, you know, the, the spectrum of experience, if you will. Um, you know, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here to just kind of create a container for you to become more self-aware. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything that we didn't get to touch on that you wanted to add? I mean, I would love to go in a whole segment of ketamine. I mean, ketamine is a medicine that I work with people. Um, I, I, I provide like IM injections for people and work with them. And, um, you know, I, I, I help, uh, I work with like ketamine centers that are like kind of popping up everywhere. It's, it's an anesthetic. So you have a lot of anesthesiologists, right? Like that are administering ketamine. They're not therapists. They're not psychologists. And um, people go in, they get infusions and they go home. And like, to me, it's like, when someone's on ketamine, it's like when they're coming out of it, that's like, that's the juicy stuff. That's where you want to process and use the plasticity of the ketamine to start kind of restructuring our life frameworks. I think ketamine is just a beautiful gift to give people. It's just really powerful. Like ketamine, psilocybin, and MDMA are the three medicines that I typically work with the most, but we'll also bring in like 5-MeO or, or combo if needed. You know, I, I incorporate, you know, it's, it's, it's meeting people where they're at. So I'd like to structure more of like a ceremony with people in these experiences, but some people are very turned off by that. It's all about meeting people where they're at and they all have very different religious backgrounds, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, working with some people, I don't know a lot about what it is to be Jewish. And so I have to just listen and just let them formulate that whole, that whole spiritual experience. Totally. And it's like some people like they work with just one medicine and a more kind of like shamanic relationship. And I do bring like shamanic tools within into the, the work. But um, for me, it's like I, I look at like there's like this unified field that connects everything. You to me, us to the planet, to the animals, to the water. There's this like unified field that connects all things. And to me, I kind of look at like the psychedelic as kind of like it, it taps into that unified field. And through that moves through us and interfaces with our psyche. So you know, like the way that I kind of like set a container and the way that I work with people, it's not necessary. I do call in like the personality and spirit, if you will, of the medicine, but it's more so like I'm, I'm utilizing that unified field to set the space and hold the container with people, which um, has allowed me to work with like various medicines, which I honestly had to really come to terms with like, 
Am I being a cowboy working with like a few different medicines? Should I just work with one medicine? Am I being like overzealous? You know, that was my own, my own journey within like, just like self-confidence and just, you know, imposter syndrome and all those things. Like, oh, boy, yeah. For this work. Again, I just wanted to touch on that really quickly. I know we're running out of time, but I mean. No, no, I love, I love that you did. And thank you for pointing out the um, medicines that you work with. I too really, I um, got to learn so much about ketamine and I see how it's just such an incredible drug as well. And they all have their, um, the more we know, the better, the more we get to learn about every medicine, the more we get to know how to lead people by walking behind them, by letting them lead us the way it's it's just an incredible journey my next question for you is um now that you're really like blooming in your passion because you've done so much healing work did you really find that the synchronicities get, getting up to the edge of the unknown and trusting in yourself enough and trusting in the universe to wait for the next right thing is that really an element of your life now that you've moved into so much self-trust and therefore trust in the universe and it's just coming because you're in your passion the universe is like okay here you go tyler this is the work you know, I, I look back on the last eight years and, um, you know, I had an idea how I wanted, like, I wanted to be like a therapist, if you will, or like, you know, I, I went, I, you know, I went back to school. I got like a degree in psychology while, while I've been out here. And, um, um, and, you know, I had like a, 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 a target, but like eight years ago, like, there's no way that I would have been able to envision like, this is where I would be and like what I would be doing. And I just look back at like how like certain doors closed and through that, like allowed other doors to open. And I was going away that I thought that I was going to go. And then it was like, like I kind of like read, read, retried my trajectory gets, gets reset. And, you know, all working towards this bigger target of like therapy and like working with people. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, so just like the, the, the trust in just, um, you know, quitting jobs, like, like taking pay cuts to do like new positions and just like trusting in that. And I'm at a place now where I left a really awesome job. Um, you know, like I, I had a lot of like respect within the community. Like there was a whole identity that I had attached to it. Isn't that um, weird? Yeah, that's crazy. It, like there was room for growth. Like I had like a, a a solid like paycheck that came in every month. Like, you know, all these things, like they're, they're comfortable and they're safe. And, you know, there's a lot of promise, but like there was something in my heart that was not like my quality of life was getting affected. Um, I was getting a lot of anxiety. I was getting stressed out a lot just because again, like spreadsheets and data entry and those types of things just kind of hurt my brain. And, um, so again, like I'm in this place where I left this really comfortable job to um, do my own thing. It's the first time in my life that I don't have like a, an employer and it's on me to make things happen. Um, I also, um, my, oh, I, my I, so, I just want to <laughs> commend you, for, Thank you for listening because it takes so much courage to do that. It's so hard and you're <laughs> so confused, but you trust it anyway. It's just such a great example. So there's a lot of trust there that I've just kind of learned to, um, be with my discomfort in that. I'm, I'm also, my wife and I are expecting a, a little baby coming in in about six weeks. She's, oh my God, congratulations. Um, there's a whole identity identity thing that's like tied into that and like a lot of unknowns. So like there's a lot of these big trans transitions coming into my life all at once that I'm just, um, okay, you know, just, just, just working through. But they're again, just kind of coming back to like, there is a, 
a certain level of just like trust in things working out as long as I stay aligned with my authentic expression and my passions and I and I and I put in like the, the action steps that are needed, uh, you know, that trust that things will work out. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's very moving. And do you want to tell us where we can follow you, connect with you and all the things and then the the psychedelics and anonymous groups? I'm still working on like a website. I don't have that yet. My Facebook is Tyler Fink. F-I-N-K. F-I-N-K. Yeah. And it's just a picture of me and my, my wife. I'm not on Instagram. Like, like, like Facebook's the only really like, like, like big social media outlet that I work with. But, um, my email address is mtthink84 at gmail, mtthink, uh, M-T-F-I-N-K 84 at gmail. For anyone that's listening to this and would like to connect, please, um, that'd probably be the best way is to like send me a message through email and just reference this, this podcast for context. And I am working on a website uh, as far as like the psychedelics and recovery I believe it's psychedelicsandrecovery.com or .org that you can open up and then and then view, you know, the weekly uh, meetings. And I believe that there are probably Zoom links within that. If you're having trouble, again, please feel free to reach out to me through email, and I can send you an email with all like the whole schedule of the psychedelic and recovery meetings. I, I also do a lot of sound healing. Um, I have I have two really big gongs. Uh, crystal bowls, flutes, Ooh. chimes, um, drums, rattles. Uh, I do bring the sound healing instruments into the medicine work as well. But um, I also just, um, I do sound healings in San Diego. You know, it's another passion of mine as well. So um, yeah, talk about inducing a, an altered state of consciousness. It's so intense. Yeah, yeah. The, and psychedelic. The, I mean, I've seen so many visions. And I was trying to recall that place in Joshua Tree that and they do the 12, um, or I don't know, do they have 16 crystal bowls? Do you know what I'm talking about? That dome? Called like the tectometron or something like yeah, that. Something yeah. like that. I do know what you're talking. I've never oh, been there, but I, I was like, I had I had seen more visions in that than than any of my psychedelic experiences. It was really phenomenal. <laughs> I've heard really good things about that place. Yeah. But um, yeah, well, it was just an honor to have you, Tyler. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tanya. I am so excited because I have a two-hour signature workshop Saturday, February 5th. It's called The Journey Made Real. This workshop is designed for heart-centered individuals seeking lasting, meaningful change. We learn integration as a lifestyle, how microdosing psilocybin heals, building resiliency and mindfulness to emotional triggers, gaining creativity and momentum towards our purpose. We weave our vulnerabilities into strength and share an ecosystem that brightens your understanding of self-trust. This workshop is only $27. It's February 5th. Please sign up on my website, tanyagilbert.com. That's T-A-W-N-Y-A, gilbert.com.